Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hello, I'm Peter Tofano, the Dean of the University of Oxford's Said Business School. Welcome to this first episode in the new series of Leadership in Extraordinary Times. This podcast is curated from a series of live online events, which we began in response to the COVID-19 outbreak. Then as now, it's never been more important to understand and respond to the issues shaping our future. In this series, our global community of experts and special guests can help you prepare with debates and discussions about the challenges reshaping business and society in the era of COVID-19. In our first series, we explored topics as diverse as well-being, marketing, the media, and lessons from crisis management in the context of the COVID-19 crisis. In the new series, we'll be looking at how the pandemic has changed the landscape in the entertainment sector, in retail, mergers and acquisitions, real estate, and more. At Oxford Said, we pride ourselves on being a transformational business school. That means that while survival and recovery are paramount, we also need to be mindful of the type of world we want to create as we emerge from this pandemic. So that's the focus in this podcast, finding solutions to world-scale problems and building forward better. Episode 1, COVID-19 and the Oxford Scenario Planning Approach. In this first episode, we're asking, how do you best navigate your organization through the uncertainty of the COVID-19 outbreak? The pandemic has thrown into question so many aspects of our lives, and decision-makers are future-gazing and future-proofing now more than ever. So we thought we'd start this new series with a deep dive into a fascinating area that's particularly resonant at the moment, scenario planning. Specifically, we're looking at the award-winning Oxford Scenarios program. How can scenario planning, creating possible futures that allow you to prepare, be used to stress test the strategy and understand uncertainty. Our speakers are leaders in this field, Professor Rafael Ramirez and Dr. Trudy Lang. Trudy Lang is a senior fellow in management practice here at Side Business School, and her work focuses on strategy formulation, providing leaders with the frameworks, processes, and space to discover new approaches. Rafael Ramirez is the director of the Oxford Scenarios Program. He's one of the world's leading experts on scenario planning and has worked as an advisor to governments, corporations, and NGOs. They'll be discussing issues that might unfold in the wake of the coronavirus outbreak, including an evolution in the role of the state, changing dynamics between Eastern and Western worlds, and the development of new technologies. But first, Rafael Ramirez kicks us off with an oversight of this methodology. What exactly is the Oxford Scenario Planning Approach? It is a practice which has to start with the user and the use. Uh, as a faculty, a practice faculty in Oxford, Trudy and I are very insistent that whatever is done has to be usable. So we have to start in a way at the end, which is if you're going to be doing scenario planning, who is the user, what are they going to use it for, and specifically when in the calendar of the user, Will the scenario planning help them to be smarter, better, better prepared? The approach has been used in all kinds of settings, whether it's companies, 
uh, intergovernmental uh, bodies such as the European Patent Office or the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, to figure out the future of scientific fields such as gastroenterology or the chemical sciences. It's used in several uh, governments. It's been used for planning the future of cities such as Houston. Uh, many NGOs such as Diabetes UK or Mercy Corps or the World Economic Forum have used it. And we've had over the years uh, about a thousand students through our program, many of whom are consultants, and both Trudy and I have also worked as consultants. So it's a very broad way of adapting a methodology to different settings. A number of principles are important to distinguish this approach from others. First of all, at the center of this, we think of the user as a learner, much more than a decision maker. We intend the user to learn about the future is coming towards uh, she or him in, in such a way that they are better prepared for it. A second difference from other approaches is that it's the context of your business environment the scenarios identify, the context of the transactional environment with whom you are interacting, not scenarios immediately for yourself, but about what context you're in. And so the idea is that you produce different potential futures that you as a learner might be in. And we will come in a moment to show how that future that is coming towards us has been squeezed into a much shorter and uh, faster and sudden set of futures when things like the pandemic arise. In terms of pandemic-specific issues that need to be considered in scenario planning. And all of this is derived from a posting that Trudy and I put up in Oxford Answers, which people can look up after. There's questions about, are we still going to be in some sort of semi-lockdown all the way to 2021? What kind of development will the epidemic have? Will it shut down immediately or will it come back in different times if lockdowns don't work? There'll be unlocking and relocking. And what kind of other effects will the pandemic unleash? For example, in terms of inequalities, in terms of tax burden, in terms of uh, massive migration from uh, underdeveloped countries with no public health coming the way of those of us that live in reasonably rich countries. Which changes might the pandemic bring through that remain? Will people still go and work in offices as much or are we going to like working from home, those of us that can have the luxury of doing that? What kind of new arrangements might arise? How will delayed pandemic infections affect trade if, um, if southern countries in Africa, Latin America uh, and so on get it worse than northern ones have gotten it so far, how would that work? Will the pandemic 10 years from now be thought of not only as a, as a major public health issue, but perhaps as the end of inequality? Could it be the end of globalization, the end of zero uh, stock supply chains? And how will major institutions handle this situation? Will they survive? Uh, we know that the WHO is under attack from the Trump administration at the moment. 
what will happen to the UN, what will happen to NATO, what will happen to the EU as a result of this. And not least, is this pandemic a quote unquote small version of much bigger disruptions coming down the way, such as uh, the global climate emergency and even more inequality with all of the side effects that that involves. Over to Trudy. Great. Thanks very much, Raphael. So as Raphael was indicating, we spent some time thinking about, well, what does it mean then to do scenario planning in this particular context, particularly where you can't meet face-to-face? So we tend to do that when um, we do a lot of workshops, for example, when we're talking about strategy scenario planning, when we can't do that, when the speed of change is so exponential, it's faster than normal, um, and also when the, the uncertainty is just so deep. And so looking to apply scenario planning to the questions that Raphael is raising got us thinking about, well, what does that mean for the, for the scenario planning process? Here is an outline of six of those, and they are in the article that Raphael mentioned that is available on Oxford Answers Live. And so for those of you wanting to embark on scenario planning, being clear, first of all, just very briefly about the difference between contingency planning, which tends to be about risk, identifying a risk and developing a plan for that, as compared to scenario planning, which is really exploring deep uncertainties and enables us to reframe things. So, for example, we might see the pandemic as also is at the beginning of a new era, or could we frame it in another way, an innovation time? Second thing is just to be careful about the anchoring um, because the situation we're in is so significant and so all-encompassing in some ways, it's also important not to be completely captured by that. So sometimes by just thinking about, well, what would be the scenario six months out or 12 months out just helps to give us a bit of space to think about what are the other broader issues that um, we want to think about in relation to the pandemic and how things might unfold. The third one is around plausibility. So scenarios uh, where risks might be around probabilities, scenarios are about plausibility because they deal with deep uncertainty. We just can't be sure. We can't, be, we can't make judgments about probability um, in sorts of deep uncertainty. So we work with plausibility and we're always looking for the edge of plausibility because if it's too well known, it's very plausible, we don't learn anything. But if it's too way out there, then... It's, it's beyond learning. So we're always looking for that, that sweet spot, if you like, that really helps us learn. And the current situation opens up a real opportunity um, to, to do that because people now have actually had the experience of tuna, which is this notion of turbulence, uncertainty, novelty and ambiguity. It's not a theoretical construct for many people now for executives, it's, it's real. And so referring and, and um, getting our bearings around the pandemic helps us really think about, well, actually things could change significantly in the future. So it helps us really to think about plausibility, which increases the usefulness of the scenarios considerably. Um, shorter time horizons on the scenarios. Scenario planning sometimes gets a misunderstanding that it's only about the long term. It's not at all. For us, scenario planning is very much based in the present, related to a decision that has to be made or sense that has to be made of a situation, or but it's very much around what it is that we're trying to do. Then we may say, well, our scenarios are going to have a time horizon of 10 years because that's the sort of time horizon that is helpful for what we're looking at to help a make a decision, for example, around an investment. 
But in the pandemic, we may be thinking, okay, well, actually six months is plenty long enough for the scenarios. That's because there's so much uncertainty and we want to use it just to make sense. So the time horizon on the actual scenarios may become um, shorter depending on what you're looking at uh, through the, the, at this time. And then fifth, as many of you are already experiencing with related to work, we can't meet face-to-face, um, -face, and so we're shifting, needing to shift the scenario work online um, and a mixture of things that can be done offline and online. But as many of you will be finding as well, it's not simply transferring what we did offline onto online. It's actually really thinking about, well, how do we do this differently? Are they shorter sessions over longer periods? Um, so, and different apps and different approaches. So it's really moving online and working out um, how we can do that. And finally, it's about more iterations. Uh, if the time that the things are changing more slowly, you may not need to update um, the scenarios and revisit them in using them too often. But when we've got so much change, this exponential change in many ways that we're experiencing, we might need to iterate with and refresh them every week. So come back to them every week. What have we learned this week? How would we change the scenarios to be the most useful? And that makes the scenarios then incredibly helpful and useful for navigating this kind of environment for decision makers. Trudy Lang. Both Trudy and Rafael Ramirez have decades of experience scenario planning in sectors across the world. They've seen hundreds of scenarios created, but did they come true? Did they help? What's the reflection on the long-term impact of this approach? If historic events such as the digital revolution and the 2008 financial collapse were warm-ups for the current crisis, what lessons does history have for us when it comes to dealing with the present COVID-19 pandemic? Rafael Ramirez. First of all, we, in some ways, we don't care whether the scenarios that we imagined came through or not. Uh, we're not in the prediction game. We're in creating possible futures that come towards you that allow you to prepare. And so uh, maybe you're prepared for an event that comes up about in a very different way that was imagined in the first place, but you've already rehearsed an event of that kind. That's what we're interested in. In forecasting, people work for the future from the present. In scenario planning, we work for the present with the future. Um, in terms of help, I can give you two examples. We're at the moment doing a research excellence framework impact assessment on our research. And two examples that are in the literature is one NGO that uh, took this approach, uh, they might be listening in on a moment, changed their time horizon for their budgeting and strategy from uh, three years to seven as a result of doing this work. So we're, we're just thinking too short term for doing this. And by the way, some of the assets we have uh, are underutilized. So instead of spending all of our time requesting more donations, we should be a bit more entrepreneurial and monetize some of our assets. Uh, one of the big uh, companies, uh, Rolls-Royce, that we have worked with in Oxford, uh, which did scenario planning based on our methodology, change the criteria that its investment committee uses to assess investments. So as a result of this work. So some of the changes are changes in strategy and strategy making. Some of the changes are changes in relationships. And I'll leave it to Trudy, who's been studying a lot about how scenario planning can change the type of relationships people have with each other 
faster and sooner than uh, otherwise would be the case. Hmm. That's very true. And it's a very good point, Rafa. So what I found in my research is that by using scenario planning, because you're trying to make sense of something new and emerging, it's a very intense learning experience. And it's this intense learning experience about what is trying to make sense of what is emerging that actually creates these very strong communities and new communities, brings new people in to make sense that can then really help with strategy going forward. Um, in even one of my case studies, individuals said they now have people to call on that even several years after doing scenario planning, they were able to do that because of the, the social capital, the relationships, the networks that were built um, through the process because of just this learning um, capacity that is enabled through scenario planning. So it can build new networks, new relationships that once these sorts of situations are happening are really helpful um, in terms of leading then to new strategies as well. Now we're going to zoom out to the macro level to look at three pillars that could be affected by COVID-19. First, technology. Will video conferencing be the new normal, or will we soon revert back to more face-to-face communication as soon as we're able? Society would continue to pull together. And geopolitics. Where will the shifts be? To the political left or right? towards or away from globalization? Trudy Lang first, then Rafael Ramirez. These are great questions because these are the uncertainties that scenario planning seeks to to, to explore, if you like. So given who you are, who the client is and what the purpose is, then enables us to think about, well, if technology is really important to our business, for example, or our organisation, how could that unfold? What are the different scenarios, for example? And how would that then also interlink with societal developments, for example? Because every organisation will have a different perspective. The certain aspects of it will be important for one organisation that might not be um, for another, similarly with geopolitics. But the wonderful thing about scenarios is that because these are truly deep uncertainties, we can actually develop a couple or a few scenarios that really help us think through those things to go, well, what if, if, if this is what did unfold, what would we do in relation um, to that? So it's who knows to some degree, and, and, and the way in which we would explore this is very dependent on your perspective, who you are as the organisation, um, and which of these are really important for you. But this, I think, is the benefit of scenario planning. It helps us hold that uncertainty and explore and take things out to their logical um, conclusion. So yesterday I got an email from uh, an alumnus in New York who's in finance. And he told me that the technology of modeling, financial modeling and doing probabilities for a retailer he was working with did not give him numbers that were low enough in terms of what he felt the retailer needed to prepare for. And so the technology of the spreadsheet and the uh, algorithms that uh, finance people uh, do. He said, actually, I will use a different technology, which is scenario planning. And he thought of scenario planning as a technology which gave him numbers that were far lower than what the model allowed for. So he could prepare his client for that kind of future. So we can think of the technology as Zoom and the computers we're using and uh, so on and so forth. We can also think about the technology in terms of what it allows us to do and how it allows us to think. And we think, uh, Trudy and I think of scenario planning as a technology. I've written 
about this with a colleague in classics, actually, Esther Edino from Bristol University, of thinking about what kind of technologies allows us to think about things differently. In terms of altruism, there is a quite interesting article at the moment in the States, uh, uh, the States I'm looking at, is there such a thing as peak altruism? And what will happen when you sort of run out of goodwill, you can only take so many bags out to your elderly neighbors, and eventually will, will we become much nastier with each other? particularly once the lockdown breaks down and we're sort of free to do things in a different way. So that's a good question as to whether altruism will uh, continue working well or whether it will become uh, an event that stops and then much nastier futures happen. And in terms of geopolitics, it's very clear that the US is not dealing with this pandemic very well. Uh, and that it will probably weaken it in ways that were not thinkable just several weeks ago. So I was talking with a client recently who introduced to me the word of westlessness. So if this was China and this was the US, it's not so much that China is going to go up, it's that the West led by the US will go down. And there will be less West uh, Westness and more Easternness. So clearly, uh, we see that uh, the pandemic tied to the uh, oil price war between the Russians and the Saudis that for the moment is holding in a truce brokered by President Trump. If that breaks down, the Middle East could become even messier and even more unstable than it is today. And that's not good news for anybody. Next, Trudy and Raphael took some quick-fire questions from our global audience listening online. First, how do you persuade leaders to plan for scenarios that may not come to pass? Here are Raphael's thoughts on that. I think there's two quick answers to that. First one is that the alternative cost is very expensive. To not think through the consequences of what could happen to you is very expensive. And the pandemic is a good example, but certainly climate change uh, coming towards us, and I have the privilege of being one of the advisors to Extinction Rebellion on their strategizing. The, the COVID-19, horrible as it is and, and uh, deadly as it is, could be taken as a good practice run for a much bigger and much more deadly crisis coming our way. Uh, the second one is that, in fact, that person that you're trying to convince is already doing scenarios, uh, implicitly perhaps, and, and not as well uh, structured as it could be the case. So it's not a question of doing something new that they're not already that, that, that they're not already doing. It's doing what they're already doing better. In the literature, that's called the phantom scenario or the ghost scenario, which is the ghost scenario you have in your mind when you're planning to do X. You're already doing that, and the question is are the assumptions that you're making about how X is going to live in that future context solid enough? And what, the, what happens if Y happens instead? Should you not be a bit more resilient so that if X does not come to you and Y does, you have some resilience built into that? Next, did any scenarios our experts have come across include an epidemic breakout? Over to Trudy for this one. 
probably the last 20 years, I've heard in one way or another, there's pandemics in Sonoras. And the one that immediately comes to mind, I think, is the US National Council, but please correct me, Raphael, if that's right, but the US National Council in around 2004 or 2008 had this quite detailed um, sort of scenario in one of um, this um, detailed experience of the pandemic in one of their scenarios, for example. So yes, they have been in scenarios um, to varying degrees um, over a number, of, a number of years. So that's why some people say, well, this isn't a black swan. It's not yep. something that we haven't thought about or it's not something that hasn't been considered. And now a question on data. What happens when there is no reliable data to support meaningful modeling? Uh, at the moment in the pandemic, it's clear that we have unavailable data everywhere. The different changes in policy reflect new versions of that data. We, uh, Trudy and I and our colleagues in the Oxford Scenarios Program, Joe Kong and Shell and uh, Cynthia Selling at Arizona State, we're also associate fellows in the school, we, we often refer to something called post-normal science, which was developed by Silvio Funkowitz and our colleague here in Oxford, uh, Jerry Ravetz. And when you're doing science in post-normal times, not only are the facts uh, uh, either unavailable or questionable, values are in dispute, there are big uh, bets on the table and decision uh, windows are short. And if you have those four characteristics, uh, the work that uh, is required is informed by scenario planning. And we have an article out a couple of months ago of the use of scenario planning in scientific organizations, the Royal Society of Chemistry, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and the European Patent Office, looking at how scenario planning broadens the conversation from different perspectives where the data might be contested or incomplete, but gives you that view, not just from now to the pandemic now, but how do we look at the lack of data and the lack of pandemic five, 10, 15 years out and look, look into the present and make it clear. So yes, we're in situations where the data isn't available, not only in Ghana, but as we see in Beijing, Washington and Geneva with the World Health Organization, let alone in number 10. One thing I, I would like to underline is because perhaps because we're business school professors, Trudy and I like to do scenario planning not only about how risk could get worse, but also what kind of opportunities are there for top-line growth. And useful scenarios for all kinds of psychological and behavioral economic reasons work well not only if you get scared and even more scared and even more scared about how things could go wrong, but also, in addition to considering those, uh, as it were, dark side aspects, what opportunities uh, for value creation and for collaboration and for new joint ventures open up? So, will these changes stick? We're currently caught between the old world that we left behind and a future that we've not yet reformed. There's a reset happening. Given Raphael and Trudy's experience, do they think these changes will stay? Are we looking at a different world coming out of the pandemic? Or will it be more of a rebound? What's really going on here? In an earlier uh, podcast like this, our colleague Eleanor Murray, who studies resilience, she, she came up with a very nice phrase. She said that resilient organizations don't bounce back, they bounce forward. And so the question here is, into what context do you think you're going to bounce forward to, to recoup? 
we saw Lufthansa uh, axing uh, a huge number of planes, quote unquote, forever, uh, getting rid, rid of one of its subsidiaries, German Wings, is now folded into Eurowings. And the CEO saying that he expected that if everything worked out as well as he hoped, the airline would be 80% the size it was before going into the pandemic. Uh, there is a very big question as to whether governments are going to be wise and invest as they are doing in infrastructure that is going to make us greener and more sustainable, or are they going to prop up the kinds of companies like airlines that have contributed to climate change and inequality in massive ways. So uh, one of the things that I think will remain uh, almost in every scenario that I can imagine, but I may be wrong about this, is that the state is back, back in big time in areas that uh, particularly liberal and uh, right-wing regimes that thought that um, the, the corporate and the private sector would uh, control forever, uh, you know, that's gone. I think that, that we're going to be in for, for the long run with a lot of uh, state intervention. Yeah, and, and this is really a personal reflection that I've been mulling over. Um, but it seems to me that it depends, I think, on what's the world view or the mental model of our economy and the world in which we live. Uh, my family farm, and so it's made me reflect really on food production, for example, over since the Second World War. So it seemed that, and I might be wrong, I'm not a historian here, so I'm just thinking off the top of my head, but post the Second World War, there was really an emphasis on production because food was so short and trying to get um, as much food into the market as possible. There was a lot of protection um, regulation. And then when that became quite plentiful, then things became deregulated, things shifted, and it seems like the power then shifted to the consumer and to minimising prices as much as possible. And then it became possible to deregulate even across borders. So supply chains spread out to the cheapest place for labour. And it seems that we've developed a system now whereby it's, it's highly efficient, but it, 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 it's really about reducing the, the, the cost of everything. And that means that there's not a lot of buffer in the system for these sorts of situations that we're seeing now. So I think if there is to be a shift, it's because we have this bigger shift um, over about what it is actually that we value. Is it really um, the lowest possible cost, for example, or do we see a shift around actually, no, we need to build in more buffers into the, well, there's, the, the climate change is very real. That to me, I think will be the key thing um, of whether we do this bigger mental shift because then everything kind of lines up underneath that. I agree with truly that uh, the focus on efficiency and uh, uh, just in time and zero stock, that probably will go in a lot of places, certainly in healthcare. And we will have, just like after the 2008 financial crisis, we suddenly had more buffers for banks. We're not gonna have a lot more buffers in critical supply chains. And we'll go for resilience rather than efficiency. And for us as individuals, per perhaps we will pay more attention to being citizens and less attention to being consumers. So finally, Raphael and Trudy have spoken about how despite the global pandemic having tragic consequences, it could also drive innovation. So what are the opportunities? What will this era prove to be a pivotal time for? 
an opportunity for someone is a threat to someone else or is a risk to someone else. So I think once again, as we always say in scenario planning, it depends from whose perspective um, you're looking um, at this because there will be significant shifts that will not necessarily be good for a lot of people, but other people will kind of um, view it. I think that, um, you know, the whole thing around globalisation, for example, and supply chains and the length of supply chains, I think that is potentially going to change. And if you were a, um, a manufacturer locally, you might say, well, that's great because we're going to come bring manufacturing home, if you like. But if you're um, in a country such as Bangladesh or some of the emerging countries really relying on manufacturing as a major economic um, activity, then that's a, a, a real risk, if you like. So I think that it, it really depends on, on um, just what, what it, who you are, for example. And I think the opportunities, the, the changes are going to be good for some and not good for others. Yeah, there's a wonderful book by our Oxford colleague, Margaret Macmillan, uh, from St. Anthony's College uh, about uh, the beginning, all of the things that led to the First World War. The book starts in about 1860 and goes to 1914. It's called something like the peace that the war interrupted. And I, I hope that uh, we're wise enough a century later not to make the same mistakes that humanity made that led to the First World War. So one good opportunity would be to prevent war and uh, violence breaking out. I was on, the, on a phone call to an alumnus from the program uh, in the mining industry, looking at the relationships the mining industry has with the South African government uh, to prevent uh, the uh, inequalities that are so latent in South Africa, uh, becoming even more violent than they have become. Uh, I think that's a, that's a first one, to avoid war breaking up. A second one would be to uh, uh, reunite uh, intergovernmental efforts rather than see them break apart. I do not know how the e European Union will fare from this. I hope better than at the moment it looks uh, NATO, of course, all of the UN agencies, other intergovernmental organizations. Um, I think that this is a good opportunity to accelerate the defossilization of energy. I saw from a, a consulting colleague a couple of weeks ago that uh, coal utilization in China is now back at about 97% of where it was in the, on average in 2019. That's not good news for the planet. I hope that the wet markets uh, source uh, and, and the dangers that that poses will drive um, environmentalists to have more power and to reverse the criminal assassination of the Amazon forest and other uh, tropical breathing spaces uh, for the planet, uh, the coral reefs in, uh, and so on and so forth. In terms of... Um, uh, Corporate roles, given that we're in a business school, I think that this is a great opportunity for procurement to become much more strategic and to depend less on the finance function for resilient organizations and more on other functions in the company. So I'm, I'm doing some research at the moment about how procurement can be a much more strategic function and not only reboot the existing supply chains, but actually reconfigure them entirely in value creating systems 
My thanks to Professor Rafael Ramirez and Dr. Trudy Lang from the Oxford Scenarios Program at Oxford Said. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and take a moment to rate and review us. For more information about this episode and the Leadership in Extraordinary Times series, please visit OxfordAnswers.org.